because we keep allowing more guns, we're only gonna, we can't I'm get not, rid of I'm them. I'm not advocating allowing more guns. I'm just advocating allowing guns to the right people and having clear guardrails around who the people who are not in that group would be. But this is like a deterministic thing. Like let's, let's flood the market with guns. Therefore, it's who we are now. We can't do anything about it. And I refuse to accept that world. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? First things first, President Biden commemorates George Floyd with an executive order on police reform. We'll go through what it does and what it might mean down the line. We've got a social media free speech case in Florida. Ricky is going to be talking to us about all of that. Ravi is going to pitch us another one of his revolutionary ideas on how to reform a major issue in America. Then we'll get into a little politics roundup from this week's primaries in Georgia to a race that isn't quite settled yet in Pennsylvania. And we'll talk about a bunch of future races that will eventually be happening on a very different map in New York. But we start the show talking about a type of story that I'm quite frankly sick of having to report on. Unless you've been off the grid for the last 48 hours, you would already know that there has been yet another mass shooting here in America, this time at an elementary school in Texas. At least 19 children and two adults were killed. 19 children, fourth graders, almost done with their school year, gunned down by an 18-year-old high school senior who most likely they had never even met. This was the second deadliest school shooting in U.S. history, surpassed only by Sandy Hook. Many hoped nearly a decade ago when that event happened that by now there would be, you know, some type of change when it comes to gun legislation in this country. But obviously that has not happened. And every time we see these unthinkable, awful shooting events like the one in Texas, the national reaction is no longer one of shock. It almost feels as if these events are expected. And every time the back and forth follows the same politicized pattern, trading blows on the value of thoughts and prayers versus the vague gestures of needing gun reform now without much detail as to what genuinely would help stop this. Nothing comes of all the shouting and a few weeks later, it's all out of the news cycle again. It all leaves many of us with a sense of just pure defeat. And the unsatisfying truth as we keep learning is that this problem won't be easily solved. And yet, moments like this one, when 19 elementary schoolers are left dead, leave no question that we at least have to try to do something. The first day I ever worked as a journalist when I worked in radio was in June of 2016. The very first story I had to report on was a mass shooting in Dallas, Texas. So my entire journalistic career has been... I've had to do these types of stories over and over and over again. Just last week, we talked about the mass shooting in Buffalo. Uh, Ricky and Ravi, I just want to get your reactions to when you heard this type of event happening again here in America. Yeah, when we covered this last time, we said that these events are all too common, and we said that wouldn't be the last time we'd be talking about it. I didn't really think that we'd be talking about it this soon and at this magnitude, and obviously involving kids makes it even more heartbreaking. And, you know, these incidents are just becoming too common, you know, in you know, the FBI has been tracking this data in 2000, there were four or sorry, three active shooter incidents. And the last time I looked at the data, there were 40 active shooter incidents. So these incidents are on the rise. And I know that's what we're going to talk about, which is how do we stop this? You know, how do we stop incidents like this from happening? And obviously mass shootings are not the only types of shootings. There's a lot of gun violence happening every day in America and there are way too many victims. And that's what I'm looking forward to is like, can we finally talk about some solutions here? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there's not words to describe how 
just like tragic 19 children and two teachers that were protecting them dying barricaded inside of a classroom can possibly be. And I think, you know, especially in the the recent uptick, I, I'd hope that there's some common sense conversation that can be had around reasonable steps that can be taken to at least thwart some of these possible attacks. So, I mean, words can't describe how tragic this is, though. Talk to us a little bit about just some of the details for people who haven't been yeah. up to date on all of this. Of what exactly happened yeah so the shooting took place on tuesday as you said the gunman was 18 years old um 21 total people died he first shot his grandmother who um as, according to last reports is in critical condition but survived and then traveled to a local elementary school where he brought a handgun and an ar-15 both of which he legally purchased and he was wearing body armor and he barricaded himself inside of a fourth grade classroom, which is where all those deaths took place. And there are reports that the teachers were attempting to protect their children. But I mean, when someone barricades themselves inside, there's only so much you can do. And as is typically the case um, in these sorts of situations, there were warning signs. Um, he posted on social media that the like, kids should be watching out. And there were definitely red flags that he that his social media accounts raised. Um, those who knew him said that he was reportedly bullied for a speech impediment, that he had home life problems, including his mom recently kicking him out. Um, he also missed large spans of school recently, and he self-mutilated by cutting his own face and fired BB guns at people. So yet again, obviously a very, very disturbed profile here. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really unspeakably tragic. Yeah, it's, uh, disturbing yet pretty predictable. Uh, you know, every time we hear these these types of stories, the profile seems to be pretty similar mm -hmm. each time. Yeah, and what's the debate out there right now about? You know, I, obviously people quickly move to like, what can we do about this? And the, the politics start to take over. I'm I'm vaguely aware of already some you know tomato throwing from across the aisle about this, and you know senators getting upset about you know something happened at the Heat game yesterday or something where they were asking people to text their elected officials to take action on gun control. I think Ted Cruz got upset at that, among other U.S. senators. Well, what are they asking for? Like, well, what are the, what are the big solutions here? One of the things that a lot a lot of people are talking about as far as solutions um, is red flag laws, because in this particular case, much like with the case with the Buffalo shooter, much like going all the way back to Sandy Hook, these individuals have track records of disturbing behavior that is you know is predictable. We can see every single time when these events happen what this is going to eventually lead to. And a red flag law for people who don't really know is basically when a certain people can request that a court temporarily prohibit an individual from buying or possessing guns if that individual is deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. And they use this uh, thing called extreme risk protection order or an ERPO. And once that ERPO is issued by a court, it prevents that person from being able to legally purchase weapons for the entire time that that order still stands. And so a lot of people are pointing to that that as a, a possibility to at least do something to prevent 
you know, these types of individuals from getting their hands on on certain on any weapon, really. And as I understand it, there are red flag laws in effect in a lot of states. I think the only yeah. red state that has one is Florida. Florida. Is yeah. that correct? 19 states in Washington, D.C. have some form of red law flags on the books. Florida is the only, quote unquote, I guess you say red state uh, that has a red flag law. And I think theirs was mainly because of the Parkland school shooting that happened back in um, 2019, I believe, 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. um, but this wouldn't stop this shooting, right? Because it wouldn't have been flagged because I don't think... Well, the thing about a red flag law is that a lot of times it's a family member is seeing this disturbing behavior, then they're the ones that can go to the court and say, I think my cousin or my son or my brother uh, may try to do something because of something that they've expressed. And so that's one of the biggest problems with red flag laws. It's not always going to be the police or the teacher or someone like that that notices the behavior. It's usually going to be a family member first. And so one of the difficult things is many family members are just going to be in denial, I think, about that mm -hmm. kind of thing and think, well, maybe they'll grow out of it or maybe I can help them. And I think that that's the biggest problem standing in the way of red flag laws is, you know, Will family members stand up and actually, you know, report another family member, you know, when they think that they're, you know, possibly going to do something like so that? So I guess it's I almost like a temporary restraining order in terms of the burden of proof, right? So it's not like a, it's not like a criminal adjudication. It's like some lower amount of evidence is needed is what you're saying, I guess, in order to flag somebody in a lot of these red flag laws. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that there could potentially have been an opportunity for somebody to flag him considering his social media history and making warnings that he was going to do or alluding to the fact that he was going to do something like this. I think that obviously those around him were aware of the fact that he was a pretty disturbed individual that was clearly struggling with a variety of uh, inner demons. But I would also say that I think the burden of proof needs to be high. I don't think that you can just, just somebody that you know saying, oh, this person's unwell should not be enough. Like, I think that you need to be, like, you need to be adequately evaluated your mental health. You have to go through a professional process. And I, if that's the case, I don't have an issue with these laws being in place because even as a libertarian, I, I think that the most profound way that you can deprive someone else's liberty is by murdering them in an example like this. And so I think if this is a way to remove guns from the most concerning individuals in our world, which are consistently the people who perpetrate this, that everyone says, oh, I'm not actually surprised. That's fine with me. But I also think that you can't be a purist and expect that these laws are always going to work. Like in, in Buffalo, for example, he there is a red flag law in New York and he was pulled in for mental health evaluation and that, that will not always work. And in order to preserve some liberty for people, you can't just indiscriminately pull all of their their rights as soon as they they are suggestive of uh, ill intent by like subjective standards. It's it's not going to be a perfect system, but I do believe that allowing for people and especially concerned parents and family members to step in and stand up, it's not always going to work. Sometimes we've seen examples where parents were literally buying guns for, for disturbed children, but sometimes it could work and it's difficult to to know how many times it will or could because these are thwarted in the first place but um they're, but they're new laws and i think that we need to to wait and see how they actually work out but they're not enormously problematic to me from a libertarian perspective i agree that these that these laws i would support a red flag law in any state but i also agree that it's not going to have the impact that i think a lot of people think it will there is this this article from the national review this week that that claims that in cases involving K-12 shootings, over 80% of individuals who engaged in those shootings stole their guns from their family members. So we're yeah. not going to be able to stop that with a red flag law. And I think part of the problem here is just how many guns we have in this country. The U.S. added twice as many guns as people in the mid-90s. Uh, by 20. 
2018, we have 120 guns per 100 people in this country. So more guns than we have people. The next most is Yemen at 53 guns per 100 people. So we are far outpacing the rest of the world in the amount of guns we have. And I think that may have something to do with the fact that we have more of these mass shooting incidents and we also have more murders with guns than any other country in the world by a pretty significant margin. Yeah, I mean, gun culture in this country is pretty disgusting, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I I, I am a gun owner and I, I grew up in Alabama around, not really around guns, but around people who own guns pretty routinely. My father owned guns, my grandfather owned guns. They did not worship guns the way we see so many people, particularly on the right, but not not always on the right. The way we see so many people in this country, uh, Bill Maher uh, famous called them amosexuals, which I think is a very <laughs> appropriate term. It's like this worship of guns. A lot of it comes from this idea, especially in the Deep South, this idea that if you, you stockpile enough weapons, you're going to be able to prevent the government or some type of entity like that from coming in and taking away your civil liberties. And I, I got to tell you, I think I think a government with at least two jets is going to be able to take out, you know, anybody who has semi-automatic weapons. Uh, so it's, 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 it's but, but it's more than that. It's also about, you know, guns represent, you know, there's things like hunting and sport and things like that. Um, there are people who believe that guns can just protect their home from being robbed or invaded or something like that from just a regular criminal. So it's not just about the big, you know, picture government tyranny stuff. There are some practical, reasonable reasons for people to have guns in this country. But I do believe we have way too many guns in this country. And to one of Ricky's points earlier, when it comes to violating someone's civil liberties, at a certain point, I really don't care about your civil liberties if it means we're going to protect at least one child in this country. When you I mean, say something as, as powerful as I'm okay with violating your civil liberties, I think that that just requires that it's very well defined. And these are the protocols. These are the types of barriers for that to take place. I, I mean, I think that this is this is where people get nervous with gun control discussions because there are big claims like that but it would be way less alarming if we if we have very clear measures of these are the protocols that we have to go through in order to say that this is somebody who reaches the threshold where where they are clearly a danger to other people's liberties. And I think that having that being clearly defined should be more of a part of this debate than oftentimes it is, unfortunately. Absolutely. No, Ricky, I agree. It should be clearly defined 100 percent. But the same way, you know, in Alabama, if I had a gram of marijuana on me, my civil liberties would get removed from me 100 percent for just having that. That's the same way I think if someone goes online and threatens to shoot up a school, that should be a high enough burden for their civil liberties to then be denied as far as them being able to own guns. I mean, that's just the way I think about it. So I would go further in this. I think there's a mythology around the Second Amendment in this country. And most people don't know that until recently, there wasn't even this interpretation of the Second Amendment that allowed for an individual right to gun ownership. Here's a quote for you that might shock you. This is Chief Justice Warren Burger, who many people believe is one of the most conservative members of the Supreme Court we have ever had until recently. And he called an individual right to a gun a, quote, fraud on the American public. This is a Nixon-appointed conservative justice. And he's not alone. The U.S. Supreme Court did not rule that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to own a gun until 2008. In fact, every other time that the court had ruled previously, it ruled otherwise, that you don't have this right. Four times between 1876 and 1939, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to rule that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to gun ownership in America. And here's a state court. Here's this uh, Tennessee Supreme Court in 1840. They said, quote, a man in the pursuit of deer, elk, and buffaloes might carry his rifle every day for 40 years, and it would never be said of him 
that he had borne arms, much less could it be said that a private citizen bears arms because he has a dirk or a pistol concealed under his clothes or a spear in a cane. And basically, if you look at the text of the Second Amendment, it talks about a well-regulated militia. And actually, when it was originally proposed by in the House, the original language that was edited included the following. But no one religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render render military service in person. That was the end of the old Second Amendment. So it's very clear they were talking about military service. Mm -hmm. The Second Amendment is a right to bear arms of a state militia. That's what it was written for. That's what the Supreme Court interpreted it throughout most of our nation's history. And now we've had a lobbying effort by the NRA and an anti-democratic push by senators and presidents who don't usually represent the popular vote of this country pushing policies on people who don't want them. A good example was Sandy Hook, where you had 54 senators in the United States who represented 194 million people voting for background checks who were overruled by senators, 46 senators who had 118 million votes behind them, Mm -hmm. and they couldn't pass a background check there. And it's happening in New York, where they're going to overrule our own gun laws. So this is anti-democratic. It's a total fabrication that the Second Amendment even means this, but everybody just accepts it as true right now. Well, even if if you accept that it's a mythology or you don't believe that that was how it's intended, that's how it acts. And so I just, you know, we can, we can make those points, but then what do you do about it? What do you, are you just going to, what are you going to do with the 400 million guns? Not to mention that I think the fact that there are so many guns and proportionately very few of them are used in a, a manner like what just happened is important because there are a lot of law abiding Americans who who do have guns and who are exercising their rights to have them. And I think that it's I think the breadth I while I don't like guns, I they really disturb me. I'm not at all a, a part of gun culture. I, I find them chilling to like even be in their presence personally. I, I don't think that the fact that there are so many of them means that you take them away from people or the fact that I mean, just in practice, you have millions and millions of Americans who are gun owners. So what do you do about that if you think that it's a mythology? Well, I think it's at a state level, we should let states like New York have strict gun control laws, which the Supreme Court is poised to overrule our concealed carry uh, law here. So I would say, like, let democracy play out. Don't make up stuff in the Second Amendment that isn't there and change the jurisprudence, especially in an anti-democratic way like this. I think a second part of this is crack down on things like straw purchases. Like there, are, you know, I think of it from as a perspective as a citizen in New York is like. We can't stop straw purchases from happening in states beyond our borders. And there's this thing they call the iron pipeline where there's tons of guns flooding our cities. So we need to crack down on that. I would love to just take more and more guns out of circulation. And for me, like, what do we do about it is I'm, I'm, I will support any leader who supports any restriction on guns anywhere at any time for any purpose, because I just think they're, it's absurd where we've gotten as a country. And every gun we take off the street, to me, means we have a safer society. That's that's just my personal belief on this. Every gun that you take off the street by, by law enforcement or by some governmental entity will almost by definition, if you're confiscating them, be legal guns, because we don't know where illegal guns are. So you're disarming law-abiding citizens who would consent to handing over their their weapons and you leave them defenseless and i i mean the 2020 like looting and rioting and all the chaos that clearly erupted and our, our society is capable of there were business owners who defended their their ground with guns there were law-abiding people who just wanted to have one in their home and so to say that those are the people that should be penalized to me is just not satisfying going after 
clear loopholes or tightening up background checks or or even raising the the minimum age to 21 that sort of stuff is is satisfying to me so that there is a route for people who are well meaning who want to protect themselves who want to exercise their rights to do so in a lawful way in accordance with their laws and then that leaves everybody else to have their guns confiscated if they end up in some sort of altercation with law enforcement or if they're detected but to say that these policies, which would effectively only disarm law-abiding people, is just not acceptable to me personally. Well, I think that there's plenty of purchases that happen that are initially lawful that turn into unlawful acts once people cross state lines and start selling them elsewhere. And it becomes really hard to, to crack down on that if you don't limit the amount of guns that people purchase at the point of sale. And so that's that's a big area that I would want to reform. But I also take issue with the fact that like, like somehow there's this right, like we say, like we're punishing people by taking away their guns. To me, I think we're just benefiting society by taking more and more guns out of circulation because, you know, as I talked about before, you talk about law-abiding citizens, but if 80% of individuals are committing K-12 massacres are stealing those guns from their family members, that means that the, the mere presence of these guns themselves makes our society more dangerous. And there's tons of studies about this. There was a 2013 study by the American Journal of Public Health that says for each percentage point increase in gun ownership, uh, the overall firearm homicide rate increases 0.9%. And the correlation be between gun availability and violent crime is st statistically significant at every level of income, according to the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. And there was also a 2015 study which shows that this is particularly dangerous for cops. And, and that's why you have incidents like Philando Castile, who was a law-abiding citizen who had a gun. And because of the weird, just paranoid nature of the way our society works, especially for cops who now have to worry about everybody having guns, there was a massive misunderstanding there, and that man lost his life because of that. And if there weren't guns involved, he wouldn't have lost his life. There's no version of that story where they have a knife fight on the streets. You know, and this is this is just something unique to our country. More guns do not make us safe. Now that doesn't mean I'm for taking guns away, but there's this there's this myth and there's this ideology in this country that guns make us safer, and it's just all the data tells us that that's not true. You look at places like Australia, uh, you look at places like the United Kingdom where you don't have access to these types of guns, you don't see these types of events happen there. Everybody believes in some form of arms control. Like you don't believe that I have a right to a nuclear weapon, right? So we all draw the the yeah. line somewhere, and that is an arm, right? Getting to the Second Amendment, and then to say like, oh, here's all these dangerous things, and we can't confiscate them because if we confiscate the dangerous things, the people who break the law and don't hand them over are going to be the only ones with guns other than the the government. Well, there's actually data on this. When the UK passed a law in the 90s that basically got rid of any right to gun ownership in that country, then gun crimes and gun murders went down significantly after that, which means that even if there were unlawful guns in circulation, people weren't using them as much for crime. So I'm not worried about that. It's not that the world. same cultural context, though. You're not talking about a country with 400 million guns and more guns than people. And I would also, I don't know off the top of my so head. So wait, just I on would, that. So because we keep allowing more guns, we're only going to we can't I'm get not, rid of I'm them. I'm not advocating allowing more guns. I'm just advocating like allowing guns to the right people and having clear guardrails around who the people who are not in that group would be precisely. But I mean, I think that you, you, like there's just not a cultural analogy. Like I, w I agree with you. I'd, I'd love to live in a world without guns. I don't like guns. I don't like the concept of them even existing, but that's just not the world we live in. That's not the country we live in. And I'm, I would 
venture a guess, and maybe I'll be wrong on this, that there was proportionately a much smaller illegal illicit gun numbers in circulation in the UK than there would be here. Yeah, but I think like, but this is like a deterministic thing. Like let's let's flood the market with guns. Therefore, we it's just, it's, it's who we are now. We can't do anything about it. And I refuse to accept that world, especially in states like New York, where it is actually within sight that if we can keep the laws in the books that we have right now and then get rid of this iron pipeline that we actually, you know, do things, for instance, like confirm the head of the ATF to actually enforce these laws. Like these are things that actually can make a huge difference. One one group that gets affected by this more than anybody else are police. Uh, our next story is going to talk a little bit about what's going on with police reform in this country right now. Yesterday was the second anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, a killing that shocked the nation and forced us all to reckon with how we police our communities. In honor of that anniversary, Floyd and Floyd himself, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at reforming law enforcement. The order was crafted with the help of both police unions and civil rights activists. And while it only applies to federal agents like the FBI or the DHS, many view it as a possible template for future reform in Congress. Now, I took a look at some of these reforms uh, last night and they seem pretty reasonable to me. Uh, Ravi, uh, what, what do you think about this just initially? Well, I think there's the politics of this and then the substance of it. I think the politics of it are interesting in the sense that, you know, the the Democratic Party flirted briefly in June of 2020 with a lot of things like defund the police and ending qualified immunity. And I think what's clear is that the politics of the past few years have, have yielded something very different than that. And, you know, the evolution of these standards that Biden put out tell you a lot. Like apparently they were way more in keeping with what the more progressive wing of the party wanted initially, but it seems like they've evolved. There are a couple of things in here that I think are really smart. And to be clear, these apply to the federal yeah. law enforcement, but they're encouraged to state and local officials. I'd imagine a lot of state and local officials will actually follow some of these policies. Mm -hmm. The couple of things I really like about this is one is a, a national database for police misconduct that federal agencies will use, but then state and local officials can participate in. And yep. so in this case, we can make sure that we're following law enforcement officials if they're trying to go from one place to the other with a bad record. Mm -hmm. They are mandating body cams, which is kind of weird that we didn't have that already for yeah. federal law enforcement. Um, that seems like a, a huge plus. And there's new standards that limit the use of force. And this is where a lot of the debate was around around those standards and I, it looks like when you come out of a situation where the both the NAACP and the Fraternal Order of Police are supporting this that seems like some really good diplomacy I, I like what came out of this by and large um, which was not the original legislation that was drafted that was ultimately leaked it was a lot more progressive and extreme than what actually came out but then people pushed back and they began to bring in the voices of uh, police professional groups and and getting the, the voices of law enforcement actually in here. I think they kind of saved face because this whole timing of the gun control debate and police accountability, like you can't live in the gun control and defund the police world. And so I think the optics of this are good for Biden based on the fact that it was forced by public opinion to become more moderate. And I have no issue with with a database of accountability, with body cameras, with having reasons for no-knock warrants for designating what force actually is, because I think building trust between people and law enforcement is really important. And it's it's very obvious to me that 
both the activist world and the police world were involved in crafting this. Yeah, absolutely. There has been some pushback for this. this uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush actually pushed back on this, saying that these provisions actually provide more funding for police. And she was saying that's the exact opposite of what us on the further ends on the, of the left want. She was just still reiterating that the defund police is still a, a big part of her mission. Uh, and so what do we think about that? I mean, like this defund the police, this was something that everybody on the left was saying back in 2020, then a lot fewer people were saying in 2021. And now it seems to be almost mm -hmm. fading completely from from the perspective of the left. But there's still a few people out there that want to see that. Yeah, you're you're seeing a lot of politicians, you know, they're running away from the defund label as fast as they possibly yeah. can. I was I was looking at, we're going to talk about the New York maps in a little bit. But there is this state senator who, you know, was very vocal proponent of the defund the police policies and use the slogan and then recently was asked about it in an interview. And she says, I'm no longer using that phrase. <laughs> Uh, so you see a lot of that happening around the country. And so I think by and large, as we've covered in previous episodes, there is a distinct difference between what this more affluent progressives believe when it comes to police reform and then what the communities that are most affected by both police violence and other violence are asking for. And the difference between those two things, I think, explains a lot about these politics. The biggest thing is, will this have a larger effect on policing in America? It only applies to federal agencies as of right now. And I feel like a lot of states, particularly red states, will be very resistant to adopt any of these policies. So how much effect will this really have if it's just, you know, the, the feds doing it and you still have all these state and local police that are, you know, almost operating with impunity? Well, I would say that there were some talks about potentially tying federal grants to um to taking up at least some of these measures, which could be effective. But I would also say that I wouldn't underestimate the desire of, at least in moderate to progressive areas, the police who want to be on good, solid grounds with the people around them. It doesn't benefit anyone. And I think that these, these are pretty common sense. These are uh, being filtered through police activist groups or professional groups. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a good number of local law enforcement agencies take this up because they don't want to live in a world where no one trusts them or feels that there's any um, sort of accountability either because it doesn't, it hurts them too. Yeah. I think one thing that's notable that's absent from a lot of these conversations anymore is this conversation about qualified immunity. Yep. And one thing I find fascinating about this is the politics of it, which is if you really look into, you know, this sense of qualified immunity means, you know, can you hold police accountable for things that are within their discretion, which for police, the kinds of things that are within their discretion are some of the most dangerous activities possible, both to them and to other people, which is why there's such a big debate around this language about around force. In the original draft order, there was language apparently that said that police can only use deadly force, quote, as a last resort when there is no reasonable alternative, no reasonable alternative being the key. Police organizations got really upset about that because that basically says you have to rule out all possible alternatives. The new language says, quote, when necessary, that is when the officer has a reasonable belief. So basically it means if you have a reasonable belief, you could use deadly force. That is a big difference. And that gets to this qualified immunity debate because that's the discretion that's going to be at issue whenever there are shootings. And I think a lot of people on the left initially wanted to go after qualified immunity, but I think as they looked into it, they realized that and as a, as a Democratic operative, I could tell you, a lot of these people can't get elected without labor unions. And qualified immunity is not just about police. It's also about teachers. Yeah. It's about other Doctors, workers. Nurses, uh, yeah. And so to give you an example, there's a great Ed Week article about this 
from June 2020. So right as the protests were happening. And he said, look, if you look closely at where our qualified immunity jurisprudence comes from, it's a lot of K-12 cases. And here's an example. This is from the Ninth Circuit. This is Doe versus Pasadena Unified School District. This was a principal who called immigration officials on an undocumented or threatened to call immigration officials because the parent was complaining about lunch policies. Oh, wow. The parent tried to sue that school official, and the uh, Ninth Circuit said that qualified immunity protected that. So this is not about just deadly force by police officers, and there's a ton of cases in the K-12. And that's why you see a lot of Democrats not wanting to touch this, because it would affect the entire labor coalition that got some elected. Yeah, it seems like people kind of took a step back and really looked at these things, which is what you should always do when it comes to things that complicate it. Uh, so moving on, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis caught an ale this week when a federal court struck down his controversial social media law. Now, Ricky, you are our resident expert on all things First Amendment. Can you explain what is going on with free speech online in the Sunshine State? Yes. So this is a uh, law that he signed in May 2021 that was um, looking to kind of fight viewpoint discrimination and censorship on social media companies by making them do a few things that I don't think are very controversial, including just making their content moderation standards public and informing users of any changes. That seems fair. The court upheld those. But then also more controversially, and ultimately unconstitutionally requiring that they don't censor journalistic enterprises or any political candidates in the state of Florida. And so essentially the the logic here is that these are common carriers like a utility company that they everyone needs open access to them and therefore they need to platform people. And the 11th Circuit Court, which has three conservative judges, uh, the one who wrote the decision was actually a Trump appointee, unanimously said this is violating the First Amendment, that you can't force these companies to publish uh, content that goes against their will or against their community standards. And they also pointed out that interactive computer services are explicitly excluded in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which designates common carriers. And um, the ruling here is pretty powerful. They said, put simply with minor exceptions, the government can't tell a private person or entity what to say or how to say it. Social media companies, even the biggest ones, are private actors whose rights the First Amendment protects. So this is um, definitely a nail in the coffin of like the sort of conservative anti-Section 230 rhetoric, in my opinion. Um, But it sounds like DeSantis is considering an appeal. I don't imagine that that will work out. You couldn't really have a more sympathetic court to him than the 11th circuit. But essentially, I, like, I agree with him that there's issues with the politicization of uh, censorship on social media. And I just don't agree that the government is in the right to take these steps. And I agree with the court that it was unconstitutional the way that he tried to do so. Yeah, I don't think Twitter is a common carrier, uh, especially considering yeah. the fact that so many people aren't on it that like, you know, it's not like a broadcast network that's got public funding that people rely on for essential information. Twitter is is just not that. And I think that that's, you know, going after Twitter and Facebook and these places. After Facebook, there may be a bigger argument there, but still, I, I still don't think you could consider that a common carrier. I think the best possible argument for that would be something like Amazon Web services maybe that like when parlor became controversial they could just remove another uh, app and so that to me like that is kind of blurring the lines of like what is a carrier but i agree with you completely that like a discrete social media entity is not and i think that the free market is kind of solving that maybe if Elon can pull himself together here for long enough to buy Twitter. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you at the Amazon Web Services example. I think that's more akin to a common carrier. I think that, as we've discussed before, 
the, it's weird that the courts only use these sort of anachronistic comparisons, right? Either it's a common carrier or it's a publication, but these are something in between mm-hmm. in all yeah. likelihood. And, you know, what I'm curious about is, although I agree that there have been some egregious examples of censorship of content, you know, a good example was the Hunter Biden laptop yep. story, the Wuhan stuff and all that. Conservative media is thriving. Like, like it's like hard to imagine them doing any better than they are right now. You know, what's the most watched cable news network? Fox News. Which are the top publishers on Facebook? If you go to any top ranking of the top 10, Daily Wire, Breitbart, Fox News, even New York Post at times. Sinclair Broadcasting is dominating TV stations around the country is either one or number two, yep. depending on how you look. When I pulled up the most, you know, the top 20 most performing podcast this morning on Spotify, at least 10, if not 11, were conservative. And these are not just like centrist conservative sites. <laughs> we're talking about four Daily Wire podcasts plus Bongino, Tim Pool, Stephen Crowder. Who runs Facebook's public policy? Joel Kaplan, a former Bush White House official. Who's about to own Twitter? Elon Musk. I don't know. Maybe. I think maybe. <laughs> but like, and then you have all like, you know, like, yes, like the parlor thing was like, that was censorship, probably common carrier. And the New York Post, Ukraine stuff was bad. But, like, these folks are doing really well. And, like, I could point to any one of these things and say they aren't putting liberal stuff exactly. on their Exactly. Like, if this, you know? this law could be used like, against them to force them to treat certain content equally. Right. What's the wrong being done here? I think Twitter, Facebook, like, they explicitly have ideological motives sometimes and they'll censor things without any reason like Robbie Suave who's a friend of mine who works uh, for Reason Magazine has had videos of his and he's like a very common sense like moderate libertarian he's not saying anything wild he's had videos of his censored and facebook is using third party like fact checkers that don't even have they're from activist groups they don't have any internal review that they're doing on Facebook's behalf, or, you know, you have little banners coming up everywhere. If you say a certain word, like here's the explanation that Twitter would like you to have of what's going on there. You had, you couldn't talk about the lab leak theory. You, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different iterations. I think that there are issues with what happens when these companies get so much power that they do have a control and a stranglehold on what conversation can be happening, especially in a world where we're all locked down in in, in our in our apartments tweeting during the pandemic. I think that was an example of a lot of different iterations of censorship that took place. But I mean, I I believe that the free market is what will solve this. I don't think forcing these companies to do anything is necessarily going to help. Although I I don't disagree that it's it would be even just if I were involved in the leadership of these companies, I would want to make our content moderation standards public and open that up to conversation on how we can make this less controversial and make it less polarizing and and just be transparent. Because if you're responsible for so much speech, I think that's a responsible thing to do is to say, okay, here's, here's exactly how we decide what is or is not allowed. The only pushback I have there is that I, I still sometimes get on Facebook and I get flooded with a ton of right-leaning, conservative, sometimes very far-right ads and things from different you know, outlets that I'm not seeking, that I don't follow these ads. I don't follow really any political things on Facebook. And so, I, I, and then as Ravi just pointed out, a lot of the biggest pages on Facebook that post political media are conservative. So I do agree, Ricky, there has been some very, very clear instances of censorship towards the right on these sites, but I still think the right has a very strong footing on both Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, so I think there definitely should just be balanced. And I do agree, the content moderation we should definitely know 
what you know the criteria is that they're using so i absolutely agree with that um so moving on we've been doing this new segment where ravi will pitch me and ricky on a radical idea or maybe something that some people would consider radical so ravi what do you have for us this week this one's a little less radical than last week although shout out to to our millions and billions of listeners who've come out and support of my idea from last week this week it's also i'm going to stick to k to 12 and what i want to propose is that we strip private schools of their tax-exempt status, except in certain circumstances. And here's my case for this, is right, why, why do we give C3 status to organizations as, as if they're serving the public good? Why do we have so many elite private schools that are 501c3s, which means they don't pay taxes and also means that donations to them are tax deductible? That seems absurd to me. A lot of these are private clubs. So let me just give you one data point. And then I'm sure you may have some pushback and some questions, but because there, there are some details here that I would want to go over. This is just Deerfield Academy, right? They have a, over $500 million endowment. They have 571 boarding students and 84-day students and $500 million in that endowment. That's tax-exempt money going into them to form a private club for elite people. So why are we giving this tax-exempt status? So that's, that's my question. I 100% support this. This yeah. one, I, yeah. I figured this one would be less controversial <laughs> than last week. Ricky, yeah. what do you think? Mm, you went to I a was, private school, did you? Yeah, I did. I'm. I don't think I like the idea of like disincentivizing people from donating to educational venues. And and if you want to put some money to your alma mater, sure. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't really. I have not had the time to prepare this. You just hit me with this one, and I don't know. <laughs> but if that's I how have. this works. I know. That's I don't how think this works. I, You're not allowed to be prepared. I don't know if um, I really have strong opinions on it. Although I would say that I would like for my boarding school to stop calling me for donations. I'm there you go. It's not. So time, let me give you. But. Let me give you some more details on it. Then it seems like I've got both of you on like on the hook. Let me reel you in a little bit here. Uh, so. Here's what I would do. I would incentivize them because, you know, I care about the kids. I would say if you accept 50 plus 1% of students who are low income, then it's tax deductible. Okay. So that would mean that, and 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 I'm a big believer in scaling uh, But how does excellence. that work if you're in like a, a high income day school? Like it, then if you that's just your open, area. If you that's just have just to open region. it up. Yeah. Then you don't get tax exempt yeah, status. I think we could get into yeah. some busing issues here, and I don't know about that. Yeah, but it's <laughs> but these are private schools, so it's not like anybody's forced to get on that bus, you know. And you could do boarding, right? A lot yeah, of these no, are boarding. If it's boarding, schools. that's different. That's yeah, different. look at some of these schools. Let me just give you some. These are absurd numbers. Exeter, eleven hundred students, one point three billion dollar endowment, Andover, eleven fifty students, four hundred million dollars in its current capital campaign. There was this absurd example of uh, of Choate, Rosemary Hall. They had this capital campaign that was raising two hundred sixty thousand dollars per student in just one capital campaign. So I'm saying, great, yeah. like these are schools with tons of resources. A lot of times the donors to these these uh, schools are actually donors to a lot of education reform causes. So why don't we actually use these elite schools, just double the size? Like, is anybody really gonna die if it, instead of 571 boarding students at Deerfield, we have a, a, over a thousand and half of those are low income students and we just build another you know big building, name it after somebody and and then we've got students mixing, which is what we want in society anyway. We want mixed income schools. We want people coming from different walks of life, interacting with each other. And then we can force I, other schools to pay. I like the conference. idea, but I feel like there's going to be a lot of cultural back 
pushback to that from these types of institutions. There's also only like a handful of them. There's not, and when you get into the, it's not like universities, like there's only a, a handful of very well endowed boarding schools. And yeah. I, I mean, what, when you, I don't really know this. So, so this is maybe a, a rookie question, but when you take someone's C3 status, like who does that, who ends up paying the taxes on it? Is it the donor? Is it the school itself? But both because like, uh, you can't write off the tax, to the, the donation, and the school would then have to pay for what would be the equivalent of revenue. But I actually think this is a more widespread problem than we realize because take Nashville, for example, right? Like Nashville has MBA, Montgomery Bell Academy. They have university school. And you can just go down the list. There's tons and tons of elite private schools just in that one town. Now, MBA every year, they have this program where they accept a couple of low-income students. I mean, this is one of the most competitive programs like in the whole city. And yeah. I've tried to get students into it for years. Some, like Every once in a while, we'll get students into it. If they were incentivized to double that program, it would change so many lives. And it would not in any way, in my opinion, like curtail the quality of the program. It actually would enhance it because you got all these kids who don't interact with people from across town. It actually would solve a big societal problem that Nashville has. So to me... It's more than just the Deerfields. I think every town has like every major city, most towns and suburbs have some form of this, you know, like Country Day in Detroit, Cranbrook. If you remember Eminem, you went to Cranbrook, it's a private school. Like they, these things are everywhere, you know? I like the the fact that you can, you know, mix and mingle the students. It reminds me of like on the Fresh Prince when Will first went to Bel Air Academy. There you it, go. It, it made a positive turn impact. Turn the jacket inside it turned and out. Turn the jacket yeah. inside out. It was a positive impact. Go. I know we're not really supposed to talk about the Fresh Prince these days, but still, uh, let's move on to our last story. Have you ever gotten a cookie from your grandma and then you asked her for the entire cookie jar, but because you were too greedy, she took away the first cookie and instead pitted you against your brother in a congressional race? Well, that's basically what's going on in New York right now. Democratic leaders gave themselves a significant advantage when reviewing the state's district lines, but the courts looked at the maps and threw them out, giving the job to an independent expert. Now, the new maps pit Democratic incumbents against each other, which means summer is going to be extra hot in New York. Now, Ravi, I know you have a lot of experience with New York City politics. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so essentially what happened was, as you described it, there was one set of maps that had you know, been governing New York for 10 years. Democrats tried to propose a map that would have netted them a ton of seats. And a lot of people think it was the key to Democrats maintaining like any possibility of, of keeping the House uh, this election cycle. Uh, they went too far, you know, too many cookies, I guess, in the cookie jar. <laughs> the new map would create 16 Democratic-leaning seats, six Republican-leaning seats, four highly competitive seats, and this would be an increase of one highly competitive seat and a decrease of one Democratic-leaning seat and one decrease in a Republican-leaning seat. So this is essentially what we want in public policy. Now, this is a dramatic change from what the Democrats wanted. And to me, what I find really fascinating about this is, number one, is that we should celebrate any time you create more competitive seats. Like, and hopefully, like we can create incentives where states can swap these types of moments, or at least the jurisprudence across the whole country demands of all states this kind of, at least impartiality, because this is this is what we want. But I would say, just from a strictly entertainment value, as somebody who has worked in Democratic politics in New York a lot and helped elect a lot of these people who are going after these seats. I don't say this lightly. There's no more ruthless sociopathic group of people than the people at the table right now. It's like the hyenas from Lion King. And, you know, as you know, Bob Sugar from Jerry Maguire said, you know, it's not show friends, it's show business. That's what we're seeing in New York right now. These people were friends, quote unquote. Yeah. Now they're 
definitely not. And they're turning on each other. They're accusing each other of racism, carpetbagging, ageism. It's it's going to be wild. Whoa, whoa, out whoa, here. whoa, 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 whoa! Carpetbagging. Yeah, that well, is... because you have these people moving. A lot of okay. Let me read you this from city and state. Basically, with these new maps, people aren't living in their districts anymore. So this is their quote. To put it simply, from the draft maps, Representative Hakeem Jeffries now lives in Representative Vet Clark's district. Nadler and Maloney both live in an amalgamation of their former districts. Representative Grace Mang lives in what was once Swazi's district. Representative Nidia Velasquez lives in Re Representative Nicole Malitakis' district, though she actually didn't live in her own district before either. <laughs> Representative Sean Patrick Maloney lives in Representative Mondaire Jones's district, but Jones lives in Representative Jamal Bowman's district. Oh, and they're all Democrats. Now, and a lot of these people are moving. Like, uh, you know, I mentioned Mondaire Jones. You know, he was representing a district that was like, I guess, like Westchester. And now he's moving down here to lower Manhattan to run. So that's what, what I'm talking about. Carpet, carpet bagging. bagging. Yeah. So, yeah, it's wild. The Yankees have stolen the term carpet bagging. Well, well, well. <laughs> All right. Well, um, speaking speaking of Southerners, uh, there were some other there was some other political activity going on in the country this week. This past Tuesday, several states had their primary elections. Georgia had a pretty interesting one. So we were talking on this show a lot about the Trump effect on primaries, and it seems like it may have stalled just a little bit in Georgia. Uh, Brian Kemp, the incumbent Republican governor there, won the, uh, the Republican nomination for governor there. So he's going to run again. It's going to be another showdown between him and Stacey Abrams. This was a big because Kemp, you know, drew a lot of ire from Trump. He, you know, uh, Trump hated Kemp, blamed him for his uh, for Georgia flipping blue because he didn't stop it. And so uh, Kemp winning, winning by a very large margin, by the way, was was a big deal and really proved the Trump effect may not be as effective. Now, Herschel Walker, which was Trump's pick for the Republicans for the Senate there, did win and did win by a good margin. So it's kind of like a even or. But one thing is the, st the secretary of state race. Um, his name, um, Raffsenberger, Raf uh, the secretary of state, the current secretary of state there. Now, Trump really blamed him for not being able to do more to overturn that state selection results, actually even called him. And that that event in which Trump called him is still being investigated, actually. And he won his secretary of state uh, race by a good bit as well. So it seems though the Trump effect not as effective in Georgia this primary season. I think that this as much as this is a deviation from a lot of the previous updates we've given, I think if when we put all the data on the scoreboard, Trump's still doing pretty well. Yeah. Especially, you know, and I'm a broken record on this, especially when you start to account for the sheer amount of candidates that he's both endorsed who's won and his record's really good on that. Or the, you know, the people in certain cases, like this case of Oz versus McCormick in Pennsylvania, either way, he's getting somebody who endorses his theory, you know, to put it lightly on elections. So, he he's winning the debate. This is an anomaly, in my opinion. Yeah, well, when we talk about Pennsylvania, that race still hasn't been uh, decided. And Ricky, there's some interesting things going on in Pennsylvania right now. Yeah, there's a Pennsylvania Senate race that we are still waiting to get the results on between David McCormick and Dr. Oz, of all people. Oz right now is winning by a 0.1% margin, so it's very, very tight. But there's the controversy over ballots that didn't have handwritten dates like on the physical ballot by the voter. But when they were received by the post office or wherever they were given and handed in, there's a timestamp that is on the outside envelope. So, you know, it's it's kind of a hard case to be made that these are not valid votes on that basis. There are probably around several hundred, but we're not sure. And obviously, this is a very slim margin, so that could be considerable. And these mail-in ballots have slightly favored McCormick over Oz. And so Dr. Oz was saying that, that essentially these are not necessarily valid ballots, um, that 
that McCormick was playing by the Democrats playbook in quotes uh, for wanting to count them and was urged by Trump to declare victory and just say that these were not valid ballots. Meanwhile, McCormick was arguing that these are clearly votes that were cast on time just with a mistake on them, that uh, he said that voters were, quote, being kept in limbo. Um, and judges ruled in favor of him on Friday. So we'll have to wait and see how those those counts end up in the end. But interesting little controversy there. And of course, Trump had to tell him to declare victory before he had it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, you know, we've got New Yorkers calling people carpetbaggers. We've got Republicans wanting to count more mail-in ballots. I just, I don't know what's going on in the world. And it's right? the, the, the dogs are purring and the cats are barking, Corey. <laughs> Something like that. Um, well, thank you all for watching and listening with us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>